I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. This episode of the Executives Exchange features Lori Weingart, Professor of Organizational Behavior and Theory at Carnegie Mellon University and co-author of The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work. Lori sits down with guest host Cheryl Jackson, CEO of My Own Doctor and founder of Grit and Grace the Movement. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on June 1st, 2022. They discuss the inequitable distribution of non-promotable tasks to women in the workplace and the implications this has for women's career development and organizational effectiveness. Learn how to foster a more fair distribution of the work that needs to get done and thinking strategically about gender equity at work. Well, I'm excited for this conversation. So excited for this conversation with you, um, Dr. Weingart. Shall I say, Lori? Please. Okay, okay, absolutely. Well, you know, I want to give women um, our titles and things that we've worked so hard for. I'm excited for this conversation with you, Lori, because um, we all know the concept of busy work or getting stuck with, you know, the tedious work and projects that no one wants to do. We've all done them. Um, but your work and your book um, by you and your colleagues really shows that there's something else going on. There's something else going, there's a pattern and it has consequences and impact um, on women and on organizations, on companies. Um, So I refer this, um, I talk about this to my group of women that I um, support and nurture my tribe as uh, worker bees. You know, worker bees, get it done. Washington DC runs off of worker bees, women. Women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. They're just getting it done. Um, nonprofits exist because of women and worker bees. Um, even the pews and churches and the work that they do in communities is because what? Women, worker bees. Um, and it's frustrating. It's been frustrating. So I've been talking to my, 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 uh, the women that I coach and, and mentor about this. And now I get to come to them with your data, your, the, the receipts. Okay. I get mm-hmm. to come with the receipts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what this conversation is about, the receipts around this. Um, tell me how you came to be in, what is the No Club? Mm-hmm. How you came to be in the No Club? And, um, and how it really gave birth to this book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and thanks, thanks everyone for being here and kind of sharing in this journey with us. 12 years ago, Linda Babcock um, sent an email to a group of friends saying, you know, like, help, my work life is out of control. I am running from meeting to meeting. I have no time, we're all professors, I have no time to do my research and teaching and I need help. And you are all successful women in your own right who also are running around like crazy. So let's get together and figure out 
how to get our work lives under control. And she said in that email, I'm gonna call us the I just can't say no club, and since I know that you will say yes, fill out this doodle poll and we'll get together. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> and uh, literally, that's it, it's, we actually found that email and threw it into the book. So uh, we did. We got together at a local restaurant, over $10 bottles of wine. That's their loss leader. And um, <laughs> we started talking about our work lives. And what we realized is that we did have very similar experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, we were overloaded with all these extra tasks that weren't part of our jobs, but they, people kept coming to us and we had to find a better way to manage it. So, and we felt we couldn't say no. So that's how the club started, trying to figure out how to say no right. and um, how to get our lives under control. And then what we realized over time, which is what we'll get to, is that it wasn't just us. Right. Right. It was that people were coming to us over and over again. And every time we said no, it just passed the problem on to another woman. Right. Another woman would get asked. And that's not what we wanted to do to our peers and colleagues. So we started doing some research and started figuring out what was really going on and how to fix the problem. That's what we want to talk about. What's really going on. I want to talk a little bit about your research. Uh, that of you, you and your colleagues, and I know you also tapped into the research of others. But um, I just, who, wh where did you, how did you start research? Did you focus, have a particular sector focus, um, functional focus, leadership focus? Like, explain, baseline that for us. Yeah. So I think like any scientist, you start with your life experience, and you look around you, and look around what's happening, to your peers and so on. So we started talking to people in the beginning, across industries, across jobs, to get a sense of whether this was just us or it was just something in academia or whether it was a broader phenomenon. And then we started reading what other people have written on the topic, either you know, um, studies of individual companies in different sectors, studies of uh, individuals, and we started finding that this phenomena was happening. It's not just that, um, there were a lot of non-promotable tasks to do, they didn't call it that, but that women were doing more than men. And we found studies among TSA workers, grocery store clerks, engineers, uh, a more recent report on women in tech, um, consultants in our own research. Mm -hmm. So we found it across industry that this was a universal phenomenon. And not only are we finding it's universal in the United States, but we're finding it's globally universal. So we're getting wonderful responses from women all over. So in the beginning, we started from a place of our own reality, mm -hmm. our own lives, and, and, it's, and started um, rolling out from there. Okay, um, so with everybody. Okay, all around the world is going through this. Um, what what did your uh, the research and study reveal? I mean, were, and were you surprised by yeah. the findings? So there's two sets of research that we did. Mm -hmm. One set of studies um, was the, the the first study was trying to quantify the difference. Is there a quantifiable difference? Because most of the research that had been done was what we call self-report, right? So people just answered surveys about how much time they're spending or whether they feel like they're spending more time than their male colleagues or whether they have opportunities, whether they ha get work that is challenging. So they were all self-report. 
And there were differences between men and women in terms of reporting how much access they have to what we call promotable tasks and, what, and access and how much they were asked to do non-promotable tasks. So, um, but it was all, again, their own self-report. And you could say, well, maybe it's because we just think we're doing more, but maybe we're really not. Maybe everyone is doing it, we just don't know how much other people are doing. So we did a, went into a consulting firm, and the beauty of looking at a consulting firm is that they quantify, they keep track of their time. That's right. They keep track of billable and non-billable time. And in this organization, they kept track in even more detail than that in terms of what tasks they were doing. So we went back and uh, looked at three years of their data. Actually, they had to do this themselves, where they looked back at the coding categories and put them into the categories, is this promotable or not? Do we use this performance on this aspect towards promotion and towards compensation decisions, right? So that's what promotability is. Does it advance a person's career? Uh, and what we found, what they found, and they were shocked, is that the women in their organization were doing 200 more hours per year of non-promotable work than their male colleagues. 200 more hours, that's like a month of extra work. That's crazy. That didn't advance their career. And this was regardless of level, the junior level people, the partners, mm -hmm. the, all the women, you know, on average, the median woman was doing 200 more hours per year than their male colleagues. So then the next question in that research is, well, how are they fitting this in? The junior women at, were doing 250 fewer hours per year of promotable work. Mm. They were billing less time. The senior women were not. They were doing the same amount of promotable work as their male colleagues. So, so the senior women were doing the exact amount of work as their male colleagues. Promotable. Promotable work. The billables. The billables. And junior women were doing less right. promotable work. So the junior women were taking a trade-off. Right. In, in exchange for doing more non-promotable, they were doing less promotable. Okay. So they, were, they had work-work imbalance. That's what we call it. Oh, work-work imbalance. Right. Compared to their male colleagues, they were doing more non-promotable and less promotable. So we'll talk about the impact of work-work imbalance on your career. The senior women were just doing 200 more hours per year of work, and it was all non-promotable. What a waste of time. So they were doing the work that, you know, comparable to men. Which and then on top of that, they were doing all of this extra, work. extra work. That's right. And okay. probably that's, you know, when we see that in the senior women, that's why they were successful. They weren't the ones who took the sacrifice on their promotion. And it's and also lasted. why we're tired. And that's why we're tired. Okay. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. So we call that, well, everyone calls that work overload. Right, but the weary. Okay, but when you're when you're overloaded, right. doing work that's promotable, at least you reap the benefit of it. Mm -hmm. But when you have work overload for non-promotable work, you're it's just wearing you down. Correct, it's wearing you down, wearing you down. Um, so okay, that's the first set. That's, that's the first okay. set of studies. Okay. So we'll come to the other one next. No, no, go. Well, the other one. Well, we'll talk. We can talk about when we get to why is it happening. Why is it happening? That's okay. the other. Um, this was the evidence that is quantifiable. This was in one company, but when we start then going back to talking to people, we can kind of um, triangulate, right? You get more information. Say, okay, this is my reality too, and and you know we're hoping more organizations will start doing these types of assessments and fix the problem. So can you give us a real life example 
Um, maybe that's one in your book or one you've got in your back pocket. And if you need some additional uh, information or ideas, that I'm sure we can poll. Examples from of non promotable okay. work? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh -huh. so non promotable work. So, I, you know, we could probably actually, and if you, this is a great time to use that app and just like text in your non promotable task from your own jobs. But think about it like in multiple categories. So, one is um, the things we do to support our coworkers filling in when somebody's sick, putting together slides for someone else's presentation, mm. uh, right? Um, mm. <laughs> right. Um, so, so we support others who d aren't able to do their work or claim they're not able to, but we get in the, we're the helper, right? We're the helper. We may even be the one that someone calls on to fix the copy machine that's jammed. Right, so all those little things. So there's all the things we do to help coworkers. You know, I read this article. Did you guys see this article about how men will feign incompetence on probably non-promotable tasks right. so they don't have to do it, and then the woman steps up to do it? That's It's a real thing. It's a real thing. And not every man does it. Right, not and the men in this room. No, right. Okay. Right. And Solid. not every and some women do it as well. Right? And actually, when we give some advice in the book to women, we say, you know, look at what your male colleagues are doing. You don't have to raise your hand if they're not raising your hand, their hand. You don't have to make, if they're not making eye contact when the ask goes out, don't make eye contact. You know, mm -hmm. so, uh, but that's it's not- It's time to whip out your phone, okay? <laughs> yeah, they don't right. need to know you're playing, you know, subway surfer. Yeah, if you're so on that just... Zoom meeting, someone just walked in the room, you know. But that's not a, that's not a sustainable solution, of course. And we're gonna get to your solution. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're gonna get to the solution. Oh, but, uh, but more, let me talk more about non-promotable tasks before. Yeah, the okay. examples, right. examples. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then there's also the things we do to support the organization, and these are very important. Things like onboarding new employees when it's not part of your job. So I know you know there's some people in HR here. If you're in HR and onboarding employees is part of your job, then it's promotable. But for those of us who are not in HR, it's not part of our jobs, but we help out, right? We organize the social event, mm -hmm. and sometimes we pay for it ourselves out of pocket. I just got that example today. Um, we. Um, clean up after meetings. We take notes at meetings and write the summary report at the end to help the group have an organizational memory. So we do that extra work that doesn't advance our careers, but is very important for the organization. And then there's the, little, the, the third category is like what we call, what other people call, I didn't make this up, is office housework. Office housework. So that is like the, what, the cleaning up after meetings, mm -hmm. or, uh, ordering lunch, um, cleaning out the storage closet, you know, just doing all the housekeeping mm -hmm, around mm -hmm. the office that needs to be done. I, I love someone just sent this one in. They said they once had to watch a movie for their boss and provide them with talking points for a panel he was sitting on with a group of Hollywood producers and executives. Y'all, keep it coming. I mean, I, right. you know. Just keep it coming. These are great, right? These are great. No, they're sad, but it's like, <laughs> right. Um, wow, I, this is rich. This will be good for your part two, okay, book. Uh, so keep it coming. Um, all right. What, you touched on this, but let's do a yeah. deeper dive. Yeah, Why yeah. do these tasks tend to fall more to women than men? Right. So what we think 
not we, the researchers, but people tend to think, is that it's because women are better at doing this work. Mm -hmm. Gaslighting. Yes. Yeah. Or, or, we, or um, we're better at it or we like it. We enjoy it. Yeah. Right. But how many people would rather be writing up the notes from a meeting than taking their kids to the playground or, you know, we talk about work-life balance or putting together the marketing report that's due, right? So, but there's this myth that women are better at this work um, or that they enjoyed this work. What we know from our personal experience and also from research is that that's not the, the case. That while there are some things we're better at it, it's because practice makes perfect. You know, when you do it over and over again, sure, you get good at it. And it's a path of least resistance to, you know, ask the person who's done it before to do it again because they already know how to do it. What we found in our research is that it's, what's driving this are shared expectations. Okay. And it, it, it has an um, impact across the board. So well, we did an experiment where we um, simulated a situation where you're in a meeting and somebody has to volunteer to write up the notes after the meeting, write, write up the report. It's a simple task, mm -hmm. anyone can do it. It benefits the entire group, but it's costly to the person who does it because they have to take the time. So, and you know, you've been in that situation, right? You're like, oh my God, don't look at me. I don't want to do it. Every, this is when the phones come out and you know, no one really wants to do it. But we know someone has to and inevitably, or usually, so, so, someone says, I'll do it, and it's more often than not a, man, a woman who, who breaks down first to say, I'll do it. All right, so why is that the case? So in the lab, we set it up where we had a task that, um, that didn't require any skill, but that someone had to volunteer for the team to do it or everyone paid a price if no one did it. Uh, what we found in that setting is that women were 50% more likely to volunteer than men. 50% mm -hmm. more likely in these mixed gender groups. We also found that when you have like a manager in the group who is asked to ask someone to do it, you know, you've heard the term voluntold. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, so voluntold someone, suggest someone does it. They're, they're also just about 50% more likely to, to ask a woman to do it than a man. And that's not a bad strategy because women are also about 45 to 50% more likely to say yes. Mm. Okay? So what's going on here? Why is this all happening? Is it because women like it or not? Well, the, they're not better at it because the task was pushing a button before the deadline. Anyone can push a button. But, but we uh, also wondered if it was, well, maybe women are more altruistic, they care more, they want to be helpers. So we measured that, and we statistically controlled for it. What we found was that it didn't explain the findings, that women still were saying yes, and so on. But then we put them in everyone in same gender groups. So now we had a group of all men and all women. And believe it or not, the difference went away. Mm. It, how so? The men increased their volunteering rate and saying, and, and saying yes, and the women decreased, and decreased theirs. So they merged to like mm. the, level, uh, the same level. Right. 
Yeah. Right. So basically, we look around the room and we say, who should take on this task? Right. And when, and when men and women look around the room and they see other women, they say, they think, I can sit back a little bit and let the women do it. So the men kind of sat back and they let the women push the button. But when there was no woman, they did it. So it was kind of an expectation of whose job is it to do this? Is it mine or someone else's? Does that? Yes. Someone wrote in, um, could this be unconscious bias at work? It, yeah, it is. Right? Expectations and having it guide our action is an unconscious bias. We have a bias, an expectation that this is women's work, even though it's just pushing a button, but across the board. And uh, it, it, by, it affects our behavior. Right. And when you bring it to light, it's, the beauty of this is it's easy to fix and it's easy to change. I also find that um, when I talk to so many women that sometimes because of these expectations that are projected onto women, um, it becomes um, the identity of women, like our value. Yes. Like that's where we are pulling our value from. Right. Um, so there's that enmeshed sort of um, take on it. I'm biased, uh, um, mm -hmm. unconscious bias, yeah. conscious bias, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and then how women perceive our own value right. based on historical right. sort of outcomes. And that plays out in this situation uh, in terms of the experience of guilt. Hmm. So women feel more guilty mm -hmm. saying no than do men. So this is part of the internalization right. of my identity of I'm supposed to be this helper. I'm supposed to be the person who does this work. I know other people expect it of me and, and now I feel bad when I can't You feel bad and then let's talk about backlash that right. women get when we say no. Right. They don't like it because women are, um, their perception is that we have to be agreeable. Right, we're violating the expectation. Right. It's a, it's, and when people violate your expectations, you tend to view them negatively. Right. So it's a real thing. So you know, when we talk about no as a complete sentence, yes, but be careful when who you're saying no to, under what situation, and the way in which you do it, so that you can avoid the backlash because it's real. And so what we try to do in the book is give women the strategies they need to give it, uh, provide an effective no. One that doesn't result in backlash, but also respects their own time and promotable work. Um, awesome. Um, you, can you touch on this? Because I, I, I saw it, I know it was in your book, um, benevolent sexism. sexism. Yeah, yeah, so, right. Okay, so we're getting to- Loaded. Yeah, <laughs> benevolent sexism. Um, so we all know what sexism is, right? Benevolent sexism is when you're trying to help someone based on their gender, but it, uh, you have positive intentions, but it's still sexist behavior. So here's an example. Um, consider um, all the development programs that target women and underrepresented minorities, because by the way, this phenomenon also, we'll talk about this gonna, as well, yeah, I it's hope, gonna be the next. Will, um, will influences uh, people of color. The, um, but all of these extra programs designed to help women, say, become better leaders. And I know in this room, you're all familiar with them. They're great, but guess what? Everybody should learn to be better leaders. Mm -hmm. And so why are we only targeting women? 
So if, if, if this is taking time away for, for them to do their promotable work. Mm -hmm. So we love these programs, but is something wrong with women that we need to fix? Maybe, no. 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 I, right? Let's, these are great leadership skills for everyone. You know, special networking sessions are really good. But again, if it's taking time away from your promotable work, and I know some of you are away from the office right now, I want to come to this. Thank you for coming. Um, but, but hopefully it will get you thinking about, you know, how you're spending that extra time. So again, it's, these programs are designed with the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. It's benevolent. But it may be undermining women's advancement if it's taking time away from their promotable work. And I think that the problem isn't women. It's organizations. We're going to get Correct. to that. But until organizations fix themselves, then you have to learn hacks on how to um, outsmart the system. So That's right. until the system changes. That's right. So women of color. Women of color. Do women of color experience MPTs differently? Um, do they, they have more pressure on them to do NPTs than do white women? So there's evidence that shows that, uh, in one study, it showed that women of color, and this includes um, many different demographics, uh, are, have, are held to more expectations that they will do the behind the scenes work and um, higher expectations that they will kind of take one for the team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, how does that happen? So one study showed that it, that uh, this was actually just comparing across genders. People of color were doing three more hours per week of non-promotable work than their white colleagues. Mm. And much of this work was around initiatives that, um, well, there's two. Some of it is a DEI work, right? Mm -hmm. So how many women get tapped for DEI work? And women are, in general are more likely to do this, but women of color, doubly so. And actually, there's evidence that shows two times more than white women in terms of doing work related to DEI. Every, every committee that puts together, you know, I need to have, you know, the, the black women on or the Asian women on the committee or whatever the minority group is. Um, and that puts a burden, an additional burden. We call it cultural taxation because it's an underrepresented group that's being taxed for their membership in the group and required to do additional non-promotable work in comparison to their peers. Absolutely. I, I have gotten this that uh, was told it was my job, even yeah. though my job was not a DEI job, but to um, play that supportive role, yeah. which should I should assume that that's a part of my job. I get it. Um, I, I get that. I, I think, too, that, it, as you have said, it's the price of entry into the game to be allowed to be in um, the room and to do your job. Yeah. You have to do all of this other stuff. Right, and you know, the, so when you think about how to navigate the situation or the hacks, one hack in that regard is to look at all the different non-promotable tasks you're being asked to do, you know, sum them up and figure out the ones that are best for you, that are fulfilling. So if DEI work is fulfilling to you, if, and it is something you want to spend your time on, then what other non-promotable tasks do you need to offload to make space for it? And if it's too much time, even so, then who can share the load? It doesn't have to be necessarily a member of that group, and many times it shouldn't be. 
because um, we need ownership across the board of the problem. So being able to um, look at your full work portfolio mm -hmm. and, and make those assessments. And then, of course, it's management's job to say, look, if this is a mission-critical aspect of our work, then it should be promotable. Right. Um, exactly. And, 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 you know, I'll say this, we can move on. Even within women of color, uh, if you tease out black women who are... Um, um, really deal with the stereotypical label of being difficult. Um, you all know the code word I'm, for that is. <laughs> um, just the no club in and of itself just really uh, plays into that or I, it, there's even less room to um, maneuver. Um, so that's, uh, but I know we're gonna get to, to, to strategies yeah. and hacks and before we do, um, because everybody's like, well, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Um, let's talk about what the cost is. Of, uh, what's the cost to women bearing an outsized share of MPT work? Because, you know, it has to get done. But the problem is, is when we're bearing an outsized right. proportion or exactly. portion of it. Yeah. So there's the two buckets that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So one, it relates to the work-work imbalance you know, the play on work-family balance, well, work-work and balance, you're promotable, you're non-promotable. And when that's out of whack, then, you know, we've there's less opportunities for advancement, right? Because you just aren't getting the work done that you need to do. And people start seeing you as the person who does the busy work mm -hmm. rather than Worker people bee. that does the high-impact work. Queen bee. Right. So you get the um, low revenue client, and you're known to also deal with those difficult clients mm -hmm. because that's what you're good at. Uh, so, you know, when you think about the uh, impact on careers, it, it definitely slows down career progression, no doubt. But also, it's demoralizing for women. And, and what it does, you mentioned identity. Well, there's also career identity. Uh, you know, there's one study of um, women in engineering. These are students who, in engineering, and in their groups, in these undergraduate groups, the women were being put into the roles of note takers and putting the PowerPoint together instead of doing the design work that they were doing in their class. Mm -hmm. And they started questioning whether this career was even right for them. So already, you know, at that young age, young age these norms are starting to um, undermine a career identity of a young woman. Uh, and we see that. Um, across careers, we have a story in there. Actually, Linda struggled that as a senior faculty member, she was you know tenured and full and successful, and she started getting tapped to do a lot of administrative work. But she was hired as a researcher; that's her job, mm -hmm. and she really started questioning her professional identity. So that's another um, impact. It can also be. Um, uh, it, I, maybe I'll, I'll hit on those too. But people tend to leave, lose, leave their jobs as a result. Job right? dissatisfaction. The job dissatisfaction, right? So, the lack of identity, the lack of opportunity. People leave their jobs because they aren't challenged. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. 
I love when you talk about emotional exhaustion. Mm -hmm. That is so big um, and so not talked about. And you know, maybe we'll have you back and we can talk about sort of the another unshared, um, outside share of the burden that women um, take on or required to take on in, in workplaces is um, emotional labor. Right. You That's know, right. Yeah. emotional labor. Right. So the emotional labor, you know, you were talking about uh, serving on DEI committees. Mm -hmm. That's emotionally draining. In addition to the time, any frustration you're feeling, you have to some, maybe you're putting on a front to represent your group. That's emotional labor. Mm -hmm. You're, you're mod, mod, modulating your, how you present yourself. Oh, we know about that. Right, okay. right. Yeah, so that's emotional labor. So the, so having to, um, and, and then emotional exhaustion ties into the fact that that is just exhausting. You know, exhausting. to have to do this work that's demoralizing over and over again, or having to pretend to enjoy something that you're not, or be someone that you're not, is, it, it, it also is a negative. Yeah, effect. and it's this notion of, you know, it's you, you're 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 being forced to take on more than your share of the work, um, and then you have to find a way to push back, mm -hmm. but at the same time make everybody okay with right, that. Right. The, the you know the, the 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 paradigm or the people that are imposing created the problem. You have to then stroke them to make them feel okay with, you know, you pushing back and doing what you need to do. That's exhausting. It is exhausting. exhausting. But there are strategies. They're coming. They're coming. Okay. All um, right. They're they're coming. So <laughs> and, and in personal life, what's the impact on, you know, the you, you talked about work yeah. work balance yeah. and then and the cost. Right. And then there's work overload. Yes. Right. Work so overload. The, that's what those senior women had in the in the um, consulting firm. <clears throat> work right. So think about all the downside of working long hours. First of all, it cuts into your family life. Mm -hmm. And and you know, when your work life is out of whack, it's stressful. Right, you you can't you 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 underperform in every mm -hmm. aspect, right? So, and you have to come to terms with how you're going to manage that. Um, it's physically draining. There's so many negative health outcomes associated with overwork, in terms of um, hypertension and uh, depression, and and so on. And um, again, that's Lisa's story in the book. So she really went down that path. The, uh, so the, we think about um, both, and, and you can, the worst thing is you can experience both at the same time, mm -hmm. <laughs> the overload and the work-work balance simultaneously. So all in all, it's, it's really negative impact on women, uh, leads to burnout, uh, leaving careers. Look, and when you have the option to go elsewhere, right. we look for companies that don't burden us in the same way. The great resignation, oh, yeah. some might call it the great pivot, um, more to come on that later. Um, what's the impact yeah. of this on organization, the impact of women um, carrying the, their outsized burden of yeah. MPT? Work? Right, so, so th there is a business case for fixing this problem. <clears throat> There's no doubt. First of all, just think about how we're using our talent, right? So if you're overburdening a large sector of your workforce, you're underutilizing their talent. So when you, and especially if it's a small proportion. So you can imagine if you're trying to advance representation in your organization, but you're really burdening them, you're never gonna reach those goals. Mm -hmm. You're not fully using the talents these people are bringing to the table. So there's a workforce utilization argument. And of course it affects their productivity and performance, right? So it hits your bottom line at the same time. 
when you have inequity in the organization of this source, of this type, you also have a culture of inequity, mm -hmm. right? And people who are being unfairly treated don't feel good, you know, about their peers. And so there's tension in the workforce as a result, mm -hmm. right? Potentially animosity. Um, and we, we've seen that play out as well. That's, of course, counterproductive for an organization. Um, so you know, we look at both the cultural impact as well as the impact on the bottom line. Uh, of course, and then there's the turnover. You lose your you lose people, we know how costly that is. You know, two to three times an individual's salary uh, can go into trying to recruit a replacement. So there's an impact to um, the woman, there's an impact to um, the organization itself. And um, so now we get to get to the part that everybody's waiting on, <laughs> the strategies. So how can women avoid doing an unfair share of um, non-promotable work right. um, or tasks. Right. So the first thing you have to do is figure out what work is on your plate that's promotable versus non-promotable. And you might be surprised when you do that assessment that things you think are promotable are actually not. Right. Because when someone asks you to do a job, mm -hmm. especially if it's your boss, you think, oh, if I do that, mm -hmm. it must be important because they asked me. So I should really do it, right? And, and when you find out at your next performance evaluation that it didn't even show up, or it's one sentence at the bottom, it's kind of like a pat on the back, thank you very much, but it doesn't really matter. So, um, so the first thing is to, to talk to your manager if they're supportive, to talk to peers, to look for successful others, and talk to the men, and get a sense of you know, what's promotable and what's not, Good people who have made it to the next level. And then look at the, your balance versus other people. So you go through an assessment, and um, we actually take you through that step by step in the book. Because, um, you know, we kind of give you some shortcuts. Okay, so you, you get the assessment. And once you get a sense of the balance, then you can start having that conversation about how to bring it into balance. So ideally, you have a supervisor who's um, aware of what non-promotable tasks is. You've educated them, you've bought them you know, the book, they've read some articles, whatever, but they have a sense, and they wanna work with you to make you the most productive employee you can be. And so they can help you to think about how to redistribute the work. Some things you could offload yourself, but many times you need your supervisor to approve it. So having that conversation, so you can do some adjustment with your current portfolio. Another strategy, and an important one, is figuring out how to say no to new requests that are coming in and make assessments of whether is this promotable or not? Can I say no to it? And what are the, impl and how, what are the implications if I do so? And then how can I do it in a way that avoids the backlash? And our suggestion around that is um, think of this as a negotiation, right? So in any, I'm a negotiation professor. So come clean on this. That's what I teach in, in, a, in the business school. And I teach conflict management and uh, interdisciplinary teams. So this is, this is the part that you know, I really love because you turn it into a joint problem solving situation. Okay? So the first is you gotta get, first step in any negotiation, get some information. What does this task involve? What are you asking me to do? And then share some information. Here's what I'm already doing. My plate is full. So now we have to think about how together, how to solve our joint problem. You need this task done, and I need to manage 
my whole array of work. So let's figure out how I can help you solve your problem without overloading myself. So maybe I'm gonna re uh, recommend someone else to do the task who has never done it before, who could benefit from learning how to do it. Or maybe there's a different role. So don't ask, you know, the, I'll use my own example, don't ask a professor to organize the conference. There, let's train an administrative assistant to do it. And this could be part of their job and it could be promotable for them. So you're negotiating a solution. Mm -hmm. And I love referring to the strategy that Bill Urey wrote about in his book, The Power of a Positive No. Mm -hmm. He talks about saying yes to yourself first, yet respecting your own values and time, providing a respectful no to the other party in terms of what they're asking you to do, but then saying yes to them in terms of, I'm going to let's jointly solve this problem. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's a yes, no, yes strategy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it brings you to the point of saying, look, if I can't do this myself, then let me help you find someone else. If that doesn't work, then how can we, how can we reconfigure the task in a way that is doable for me? I can take a piece of it, maybe the piece I really enjoy doing, mm -hmm. or maybe the least time consuming. I can teach someone else to do it this time, so they'll do it next time. Or um, if I'm going to be the one doing it, then we need to work together to figure out what I'm giving up. So I just have to throw this in here. This question just popped up um, because it's the question that led to this book and the research. The question in the audience is, how do you avoid passing the work down the chain to other women? OK, guys, cover your ears. <laughs> Recommend a man. So then we know that I like it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So two, I'm gonna make two arguments for this of why it doesn't, it's not as bad as it sounds. Okay. Two arguments. First of all, remember the natural tendency is to ask women more than men and women are more likely to say yes. So you put those probabilities together and naturally women are doing more than men. So by recommending a man for some of these, we're, we're going to start evening it out. But when there's only say 20% of the women on the workforce, mm -hmm and 80% male, it's very little additional burden for any one guy, and it's a huge release for the women, right? Mm -hmm. So just think of, you know, so it, 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 it's, um, but that's not the only strategy, it's one of many. And the more effective strategies aren't that the women are having to manage it, but the people who are distributing the work are doing it equitably and thoughtfully. Those are the solutions that stick, and those are the really the ones that I'm really um, excited about getting out to organizational leaders. So uh, I, I I do want you to be specific and role yeah. play this out because okay. this is the one question that keeps popping up on this screen. So clearly, okay, um, somebody's got to take notes. If we are responsible for deciding who, what is the best way to make this equitable? Here's really the question is, in the moment, yeah, in the moment. how do you say no to note-taking? Right, right, okay, so I will do the caveat that, and I'll hear, I'm gonna tell you the way Lisa did it in her meeting. Well, I won't do the caveat, I'll tell you what Lisa did. She was ready for this because this happens in her faculty meetings all the times, so they have to take notes and write up reports after them. She brought a hat to the meeting, okay, a knit cap. And she said, you know, we know that women are more likely to do this. Let's, instead of 
asking for someone to volunteer, let's draw a name out of a hat. And so it'll be random. And they did that, and they still do that to that, you know, we're, we're under draw without replacement, so you don't have to do it over and over again by chance. But, you know, you, so that is, you know, she's the person who does this research, so she can say that. Mm -hmm. Maybe you feel uncomfortable or too cheeky coming in with a hat and say, let's do that. Um, say, you know, I did this last time. Maybe it's Joe's turn. Or, you know, I'm happy to do it this time, but can we, you know, instead of relying on volunteers or mm -hmm. let's change the process, let's take turns. And so a follow-up to that is, isn't the negotiation an MPT? It's not our responsibility to solve their problem. What, yeah, I get that. Um, what do you say about that? Um, right, so this is why we cannot come at the problem and just say, hey women, here's what you need to do to navigate the situation for yourself, because it doesn't solve the problem, mm -hmm. right? That's why we have you know, chapters in here and so much on what managers can do and what organizations can do to change their practices to fix the problem. However, we live in this environment. This is reality. Mm -hmm. And if you can't navigate it effectively, you're in trouble, right? Because the system is still there, right? So mm -hmm. it's not our responsibility to solve the problem, but we can do things to seed change in our organizations for things that we want to see happen. So we navigate the situation for ourselves. We bring, we, we spread the word and, and um, we, you know, seed the change by making others aware and get our leadership to affect change. So quick, quick uh, idea for that is I use a lot. Um, just record the conversation, the meeting, record, <laughs> push the record button. So um, that um, helps. This is a good segue though to the role of organizations in um, addressing the imbalance of NPTs and NPT work. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned what you said um, just a moment ago, that uh, women primarily uh, are not responsible for fixing this. Right, this is not- By learning how to push back. Right. right. This is not a fix the woman problem. This mm -hmm. is a fix organizational practices problem. That's right. Right. And, you know, it's not our responsibility to fix the problem. It's organizations, but we have to, we want to effectively survive and thrive in our careers until it gets fixed. So, right, there's, there's these dual purposes going on simultaneously. We write the book to women. It's written to you because we know that that's our first line of entry because you live this, but we the back half and really what we're trying to do is say the real problem is like many things built in remember it's expectations it's unconscious mm -hmm. we're doing it and women do it to women too it's not just men expect women to do this women expect women to do this we turn we found ourselves in the club doing this and, and uh you know because we were all in leadership roles at some point and we would like lisa said she put she Wanted to, needed to get something done, she put a committee together in her department and all of a sudden she realized, oh my God, I just asked all women, mm -hmm. I feel terrible. And she had to backtrack and redo it. Yeah, it's society, yeah. you know? So, yeah, so, yes. it, so if it's built in, then we need to, you know, the first step is to make, we have to see it. 
make the unconscious conscious, right? So um, helping people start to just talk about what's promotable and not promotable. It's not a, don't start the conversation about gender because people then like, well, oh, this is a woman's thing. And you know, oh, she's just being difficult, you know? And, and I've seen these responses on articles we published in, I, in different, in some outlets, shocking some of the responses we've gotten from some men who were really uncomfortable with even the conversation. So it's easier to start the conversation around what's promotable and non-promotable and just who's doing what. And you know, it may naturally surface. Maybe you work in an organization where it's not a problem and maybe you're in a primarily female industry or job and that's a different dynamic too. But um, you gotta get the word out. So that's like the step, first step. Well, first step, get the word out. Um, and, and managers have a role in that. Managers have a role in that. So organizations can train managers right. on how to more evenly distribute MPP. Yeah, so that's the second step. Okay. Right, that's the second. So once you have awareness, the second step is to the, take care of the low-hanging fruit, right? Stop asking for volunteers and start turn-taking. Do a quick and dirty assessment of who's doing what and redistribute. You know, I, I was uh, serving a senior associate dean in the business school for a few years, but the first, and we were already in the club at that point, and the first thing I did, I was so excited, I sat down with my, my counterpart and I said, show me the spreadsheet of all the faculty and what committees they're on, because this is how we do service, it's all these committees. And he said, we don't have a spreadsheet. Uh -oh. I'm like, okay. That's the first step, let's pull it together. So we, we, we pulled it together and we just had names and committees and just used tick marks. It didn't even say which were higher. Anyway, with this distribution, we had women at the top and the men at the bottom and the middle was kind of even, whatever. We had a problem. Mm -hmm. So again, we, and then we just redistributed. So this spreadsheet showed that a lot of the MPT work was being done. By the way. So, that, by so the way. if you look at how many committees people were serving on, there were more women doing four or more committees, three or more committees at the top, and, very, and zero, almost no men. And there were many men doing no committee work and no women there, right? So mm -hmm. basically, you know, the tail, the, the distribution was different in that regard. And it's fixable mm -hmm. because we were in the leadership role and we assigned the committees. So we reassigned the committees for the following year and evened it out. And yes, there were some women who were culturally taxed, we, but we were intentional, I said, look, we need women on this really important committee. We have very few female faculty, so they do need to be on this extra one, but we're not gonna ask them to do all this other stuff that other NPTs that aren't as important. So that was something I could do in a leadership role. And I think any manager in a work group in a department can do that. Ask people what, they, you may not know all the NPTs they're doing, but ask them. Because everyone can tell you, once they know what an NPT is, they can, they can tell you that. So that's another, Another strategy right. or tactic for organizations. Any other, anything else you want to add Absolutely, to that? yeah, yeah, lots. And I'm gonna try not to go too, oh, we're almost, yeah, all right. So let me just say that um, talking about what individual managers can do, and so they can affect their local, the equity within their work groups or their departments. But if we really wanna affect long-term change, this is their organizational practices that need to change and strategies. And this is where HR comes into play too, right? Because we need to think about what tasks are promotable or not? Are we rewarding the right work and making sure that um, tasks that are currently non-promotable, maybe they should be promotable. How do they align with the mission of the organization? How do they affect the bottom line? Um, whatever that may be.
The second is to, um, in re changing job descriptions, you might have to introduce a new position. Think about how work is allocated, uh, do those things. So there's a, um, and even doing an organizational-wide assessment like they did in the consulting firm really had a, a big impact. But thinking about how we might redesign jobs and redistribute work and value work in order to make the real changes um, so that everybody has, you know, the access to opportunities and, and, you know, a subset of your population isn't being anchored with all this additional work. And I know you've got more strategies for organizations, uh, which is why this book is so important for women and companies. Um, so I'm going to end this. Maybe I have a couple more minutes. Well, you probably need that time to respond to this. Um, but in maybe the last question is this from the audience. How do you get leadership or your manager on board without buying everyone a book? <laughs> and if you give them the book, what is the chance they'll read it? Um, so I'm going to start with the assumption we're talking, we're not talking about women managers because women managers live through this. We all live through this. And so if you find your key allies in the organization that are at higher levels, they're going to be, you know, really important advocates for um, getting the word out. The um, and since I'm going to slide this question in because I think it was one of the first questions, but it's so relevant to what you just said. Allies. Allies. How do you get men to understand and become allies? Yeah. Because they're more than likely the manager. Right. You know what? What's interesting is that the majority of the men that we've talked to on this care deeply and are really uncomfortable with the inequity. They were unaware of it. They, don't, they didn't track it in any way. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to be seen as the, you know, engaging in behavior that harms their coworkers. So the majority of the men actually, once they are aware of this and realizing that the changes are not necessarily earth shattering or, you know, are open to it. Right. <laughs> There's really interesting research that shows that men who have daughters and are m married to women are more likely to be open to gender equity related concerns. Um, I don't love that because I really think everybody cares. Um, but I think when your exposure and you just, you know, when, I've been able to approach, especially men um, who have grown daughters. They think about this happening to their daughters or they see it happening to their wives and it's really distressing to them. So if you can make it personal, mm -hmm. sometimes that helps. So um, if you are going to, one, you should get the book yeah. um, and you should buy it for your boss and someone in HR and um, expense it, okay? There you go. <laughs> that part. I love that. Um, oh, yeah. So that's how we take care of that problem. Lori, yeah. yeah. um, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing uh, your time and the work and the research and, and the no club. So um, this has been incredibly helpful. Any, any new members of the no club in the room? Okay. <laughs> right. Oh, oh, we love that man was the first one to raise his hand. Um, that's awesome. So <clears throat> Okay, so with all the new members of the No Club, let's give Lori uh, a round of applause.
Thanks, Cheryl. That's all for today's episode of The Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.